Our first Bible reading comes from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. That's Mark, chapter 2, verses 18 to 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? They cannot, so long as they have him, have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. This is the word of the Lord. If you could turn with me again to the book of Mark. We're going to be following along as usual from the reading before, so that'll be Mark chapter 2. And I'm just going to be reading two verses, which is 21 and 22. So Mark chapter 2, and picking up the reading at verse 21. Let's hear from God's word. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, the skins and and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Friends, as we take a closer look at God's word, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, continue to open up your word to us. Help us not, Lord, just to to know your word with our head, but also in our heart and in every season of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, yesterday we had an election. And this morning we have a result, or it looks like a result. And as you take it in, many of you may be feeling one of two things this morning. Optimism or pessimism. Election night always demonstrates that that, that, uh, division amongst our population, doesn't it? One half of the TV coverage has people feasting and celebrating, while the other half fasting and mourning. So I wonder where you're at with all of this this morning. How has what happened in our election last night affected your ability to happily eat your breakfast this morning? It's interesting, isn't it, how we physically respond to news, isn't it? How our stomach can get involved in the headline of the day. Now, you're probably all thinking, this is all very interesting, people. What does an Australian federal election and our gut reaction to it have to do with our passage this morning? Well, two things, actually. First up, Jesus' ministry, as it progresses, things are getting more and more political, aren't they? Tensions clearly on the rise between this populist leader called Jesus and the religious establishment especially among a particular wing of this group called the Pharisees. What has their tongues wagging and their fingers waving? Well, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the match was really lit 
when Jesus said to a certain man on a mat, Son, your sins are forgiven. With that declaration, Jesus had clearly outed himself from the mainstream. For this was a pardon no man, no matter how special he was, can offer but God. And if that wasn't enough to show that Jesus had gone rogue, about a week later, he decided to invite a tax collector for Rome to join his inner circle. That's right, a despicable traitor of his own nation is now one of his key disciples. And here comes the clincher. When a bunch of Pharisees questioned him about this, well, without batting an eyelid, Jesus responded by saying it's people just like Levi who he has come for. Tax collectors and sinners just like him rather than good, honest, righteous folk like us. I throw all this together and one thing is now clear. If Jesus' popularity keeps growing, he's going to be a serious threat to our religion as we know it. And so the fight is on, on in earnest to win the hearts and minds of the populace back to the major party. And so we see, as politics have dominated here for a while, so it was dominating back then as well. So that's the first connection to last night. And the second, believe it or not, has to do with our gut reaction to it all. How so? Well, have another look at verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Our friends, as you can see, wedge politics goes back a long, long way, doesn't it? Nevertheless, the observation is an interesting one, isn't it? As two significant religious groups who were very invested, deeply invested in the direction of their nation, were both fasting. And what's so eye-catching about that is John and the Pharisees, well, let's just say they don't normally see eye to eye. I mean, who could ever forget John's choice words to the Pharisees when he spotted them coming over the hill to check him out? You brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Clearly, when it comes to Israel, its direction, its restoration, John and the Pharisees are on opposite sides of the aisle. And yet, friends, as we see right here, both John's disciples and the Pharisees are bipartisan when it comes to fasting. Both agree going without is the right response to Israel's current situation. And with that being the case, how is it, Jesus, that you and your crew are bucking the system? Look left, and they're all doing it. Look right, same deal. Everyone has come together on this except you. So what gives 
Why aren't you and your followers fasting and praying for your nation? Now, friends, before we get to Jesus' answer, let's have a quick look at why both these groups were actually doing this. Because there's a bit more here than meets the eye. So let's first start with the Pharisees. Now, when it comes to the scriptures, which they all knew very, very well, and they'd always remind you that they knew it very, very well, if you went up to a Pharisee and asked them to take you to chapter and verse about God's requirement to fast, the only place they'd be able to take you to would be Leviticus 16 or Numbers 29, both of which refer to one day of the year, the Day of Atonement and how Israel were to deny themselves on this solemn day. Now, while the Pharisees knew this, nevertheless, they decided to make fasting a twice-weekly practice. Now, friends, just by the by, their decision to do this was not actually bad or wrong in any way at all. Because although God only stipulated one day, people were also free to fast and pray as often as they felt the need. Jesus says so himself, doesn't he, in his Sermon on the Mount, chapter 6, verse 16. Okay, so what's the problem then? Because we always know there is a problem, don't we, when it comes to the Pharisees. And so here it is. Mix this practice with pride and you end up With this, from the lips of Jesus, have a listen. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Why is the Pharisee so much better Well, let's hear it from him. I fast twice a week. Twice a week. How about that? How good is that? Plus, I also give a tenth of all I get. Friends, the problem here is pretty plain to see, isn't it? A practice that was meant to express humility, Dependence, indeed repentance, wound up being a self-righteous boast. Indeed, number one on the good works CV that will guarantee a Pharisee front row seats in glory. Friends, before we scoff at this, we need to remember Pride is not unique to a Pharisee. Not a Pharisee problem, but a human problem. As such, as we seek to be disciplined and demonstrate the fruit of obedience in our lives, we need to guard our hearts, speak to our hearts, that the only going without that we can boast in is Jesus going without for us. Him giving up his life that we might live. 
but by the grace of God, but by his mercy we go. So that's the Pharisees. What about John's disciples? Why are they just as keen as them to go without as well? Well, friends, Mark doesn't tell us, does he? But he does give us a pretty big clue. Have a look at the opening verse again. Both the Pharisees and their disciples are fasting. But when it comes to John, it's just his disciples, isn't it? Not John. So what's with that? Is John finding those bugs and honey just too delicious to give up? Or is something else going on here? Something like John not joining his disciples because he's no longer with his disciples. Marched off and thrown into the slammer by Herod's henchmen for calling him out on his sexual immorality. Our friends, knowing this is exactly what happened to John and happened early on in Jesus' ministry, I would say that's precisely why John doesn't get a mention here. How does his inner circle react in being held up in Herod's personal dungeon, life clearly on the line? Well, how would you react? Normal routine? Out and about on weekends? Or a new routine revolved around fasting and praying for him? Friends, although Mark doesn't tell us why John's disciples are going without Deep distress and concern for their leader is almost certainly their motivation here. And so we see while both the Pharisees and John's disciples are fasting, they are doing so for very, very different reasons. But you know, that doesn't weaken the people's argument. They're challenged, but if anything, it strengthens it, doesn't it? My Lord, clearly this is a time of huge distress for Israel. John's disciples are expressing it thanks to that maniac leader called Herod and the Pharisees are expressing it as they seek liberation from Rome. From every angle, whichever angle you look at it, Israel is clearly in deep, deep trouble. And yet, you're out and about with your disciples every weekend. Parties, feasting, drinking, How on earth is that appropriate in times like this? Now, friends, if these people are expecting something like, gee, you know what, you're right. Spot on. Thanks, guys, for the wake-up call. I'll rein it in from here on in. If they're expecting that little gotcha question of theirs to force Jesus into a back down, to change his behaviour, well, let's just say they're in for a little bit of a shock. Verse 19, have another look at it. How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Our friends, what an answer this is from Jesus. As he takes his questioners straight to a scenario when the last thing people would do the last thing on their minds would be fasting and mourning and and things like that. Indeed, an event where not eating would not simply be inappropriate, but downright rude. I mean, could you just imagine going to a wedding reception, all downcast, drab clothes, 
passing on the food, passing on the the toast. Ridiculous, offensive. As it would be if I told my disciples to do the same, says Jesus. Why? Because the bridegroom is in their midst. The bridegroom is here. Now, friends, if you're a first-time reader of the Bible and you've just come to this exchange and Jesus' answer here, you'd think, wow, I wasn't quite expecting that. Bridegroom, hey? That's quite the response, quite the comeback to their tone-it-down sort of challenge, isn't it? But, friends, if you're a first-century Jew and heard Jesus' response, wow, doesn't quite capture it. Because there's a wedding metaphor that runs like a golden thread right throughout your scriptures. Have a listen to this from Isaiah 62, for example. Speaking to Israel, he says, The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name and the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or your name, the name of your land desolate. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Friends, I could have taken you to dozens of similar passages, but the point is made clear, isn't it? Who is the bridegroom? God. Who is the bride? His people. And despite her unfaithfulness, his love never breaks. Despite her waywardness, he will return for her. And on that day when he comes, how much more the joy, how much more the celebration than a normal human wedding. And on the flip side, how much more inappropriate to fast and mourn when he arrives. Friends, the implication of Jesus' answer here is clear and profound, isn't it? His eating and feasting with his disciples was a, to- was a sign that the time for fasting was over. For the divine bridegroom has arrived, just as promised. But then Jesus says, if you follow on, But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. So what's that about? Well, friends, it's not about Jesus suddenly getting cold feet here. No, it's about both his feet and hands being nailed to a cross for his bride. Taking on her sin paying for her waywardness that she cleansed and forgiven might be his forever. Thanks to Jesus' death for his bride, there will be no till death do us part in this relationship. And friends, while we know this as Christians, see exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 20. This little group doesn't yet see that yet, but they see enough to see their heads into a spin here. Spinning as Jesus' reference to himself as bridegroom was just a little bit unexpected for them. And seeing their shock, the bridegroom speaks into it by giving them two analogies to think about. 
Have a look, verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Now, friends, I still remember when I became a Christian and reading this for the first time and going round and round in my head. Is Jesus the patch or the shirt, the wine or the, or the skin? And even if I could work that out, what's his point here anyway? Well, friends, for starters, we need to remember what's just happened. These questioners are trying to rein Jesus in, trying to get him to fit in. All the serious religious people are doing this, Jesus, so so should you. That's the general gist here. And Jesus' response about patches and wineskins is all about helping them understand why he, as the bridegroom, will never marry up with the religious establishment of the day. Now, why is that? Well, friends, our first thought might be, well, because the Pharisees are so stuck in their self-righteousness, they're never going to recognise their need for Jesus. Like a new patch on an old shirt, they'll never come together, never see eye to eye. It's just never going to happen. But while that might be true, that's not Jesus' point here. For he doesn't have the temple leaders in mind, but the temple itself. That is, you can't patch me onto and into the religious system as it stands. Why? Because the bridegroom has come to do away with it, replace it completely. But how is that going to secure the bride? Well, remember Jesus' big challenge to the temple leaders? Tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. A new temple is about to replace the old. And when Jesus leaves that tomb after three days, this new temple is now up and running. No need to ever return to the old one with a sacrifice ever again. Why? Well, no one puts it better than the writer to the Hebrews. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The blood of Christ, however, his death, his sacrifice, different story. Friends, a truth made so powerfully clear when at the point of his death, the curtain in the temple rips from top to bottom. The division between us and God that represents that division, the curtain, no more. You can't patch me onto the old system because in me the old is gone and the new has come. A new and living way opened up by the blood of Christ. No wonder when John spotted Jesus, he cried out, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
And knowing this, the only thing left to do is have this new patch attached to your garment. The new wine received in you. How does that happen? By trying to be really extra hard to be a good Christian? By seeking to really knuckle down from now on in your obedience? No, the patch will never stick. The new wine never hold if we make that same old mistake. So how does the new patch fit and the new wine be received? By friends, letting go of religion and embracing relationship. The new relationship the bridegroom secured for you at the cross. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is the bridegroom who came in love to win you back to himself. He is the bridegroom who is now preparing a place for you to be with him and live with him forever. How can you be sure that great day will certainly come for you? Well, by seeing what the bridegroom did in the past to win you to himself and seeing it being won by him through a thankful, believing heart. That's it. Is that you? Are you his? Is he yours? Our Heavenly Father, what a stunning answer Jesus gives when challenged about not fasting and mourning for Israel. For he is the great promised bridegroom to come to win back his people, to win back the church. And what a cost it was to win us back to him. His blood shed on a cross. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that he didn't come to to patch himself onto an old religious system that can never actually deal with the heart of the problem, our sin, our pride, our walking away, our judgment. We thank you, Father, that he came to be the temple, to be the sacrifice, the perfect blood shed that we might be perfected, forgiven and brought back to yourself. Our Heavenly Father, it is so hard not to fall into a works-type mentality in our relationship with you. Help us, Lord, if we've moved that way to come back to the cross, to recognise Jesus' great love for us and how that love shown on the cross has won us for him to you forever. Help all our obedience, Lord, all our doing or going without be a love response to his wonderful love shown to us. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.